Genesis chapter number 44 this evening. We're still continuing the story of Joseph and his brethren. Of course, Joseph is, is yet to reveal his identity, that he is actually Joseph to his brethren at this point. They came back down after they had ran out of food. They came to Joseph again. They were worried about the money being left in their sacks. They gave it to him. There was no problem with that. And then they were invited in and actually dined with Joseph. And we left off in the previous chapter, chapter 43, where they were drinking and, and, and being merry and eating with Joseph. And, uh, of course, all the brethren were there. I, I drew the, the parallels also with uh, the Lord's Supper, with the Passover that we saw all of those. So let's continue here with the story in Genesis chapter number 44. Genesis chapter number 44, verse number 1. The Bible says, And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth. So notice this is exactly what he had done before. Verse number 2, And put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest. That's Benjamin, of course. And his corn money. So also his money, just like he did with the other brothers. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. So, so they each, each of the 11 brethren have their sacks. All their corn is filled up in there. And then he wants them to put all of their money back in each of the 11 sacks. But he also wants his steward of his house to take his cup, the silver cup, Joseph's cup, and put it specifically in the youngest, he says. So that's Benjamin. So Benjamin has this additional thing in his sack, and it is Joseph's cup. Verse number three. As soon as the morning was light, so as soon as it was light out in the morning, the men were sent away, they and their asses. And when they were gone out of the city, and not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when thou dost overtake them, Say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? So the very first thing he's going to say to them is, Why have you returned us when we've done good to you with evil? We've been nice to you. We've done good things to you. Obviously, Joseph brought them in. They were told, Hey, I was supposed to put that money in there. So obviously, that looks good on Joseph's part. He dined with them. He let Simeon go. He treated them greatly. They were very uh, um, cordial, and everything went great, didn't it? And he said, we did good to you, but now you're doing evil to us. Obviously, they're not aware of what's going on yet. Verse number 5, it says this, Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh? So he's looking at the cup, of course. And whereby, indeed, he divided. Ye have done evil in so doing. So those verses were him just talking about what he wants him to say. Now, verse 6. And he overtook them, and he spake unto them these same words. And they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? So those words that we just read, he overtakes them, he speaks all those words, and then they respond with, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? So they're like, what is this about? What evil have we done, basically, is what they're saying. God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. So they're saying we would never do that. God forbid that we would do that. And of course they say thy servants, being humble, we'll see that repeatedly in this chapter, verse number 8. Behold, the money which we found in our sacks' mouths, we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? So they're, they're appealing to their honest history of when the first time they were given this money, and they weren't aware that that money was purposely put in there by the steward, because Joseph had told them, 
and he pretends as if, let's say that, he pretends as if he was just giving it to them, like the Lord was blessing them. That's what the steward responded with. And they're saying, hey, we weren't aware of that, and we proved that we were honest. We brought it back to you. So if we were going to steal from you, if that's the type of people we were, and that was our character, why would we have done that? Don't you remember? So we, he, he's appealing to their honest, or they are appealing to their honest history that they had with him before. Look here what it says next. It's, so, he, so he says in verse 9, with whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondage. So that's pretty extreme, but of course he's making this statement because he feels as if, hey, we're for sure innocent. Right? We, we haven't done anything like this. We definitely haven't done this. So he's like, hey, whoever it's found with, let him die, you can put him to death, and then all the other people will be your bondmen. It's basically when somebody, you know, will give you some, hey, if you're able to do that, then, you know, you know, I've heard people say, I heard a particular guy say this, that, that is, uh, sticks out in your mind all the time. He's like, hey, if you're able to find this verse verse in the Bible, I'll eat every page of the Bible. I've heard somebody say, now, is he really going to do that? He's not going to do that either way, right? But what's the point? He's, 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 he's raising the stakes to something ridiculously high because he's like, it's not true. That's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, if you find it with one of us, you can kill him, and then the rest of us will serve, serve you the rest of our lives. Because he's, he's saying, we, that's his way of saying, that's ridiculous. We haven't done this. Look at verse number nine, uh, 10. And he said, now also let it be according unto your words. So the steward responded and said, okay, let it be according to your words. And then he, but then he says this, he with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. Verse 11. Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground and opened every man his sack. Now notice how they did it speedily. Why? Because in their mind, they're like, we know we're innocent. You know, if they, if one of them had stolen it, obviously, then they would be, you know, like, mm. but they speedily put it down to try and prove their innocency, right? Verse 12. And he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest. Of course, he found it. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they rent their clothes, that's of course a sign of great mourning or great distress, and laid it, that's like loaded, every man his ass and returned to the city. So every man, of course, rips his clothes at this point, that's what rent means, or tore his clothes, and they are mourning at this point because of what has taken place. Now they know that there's going to be serious consequences, or at least that's what they're thinking. And then they go ahead and they load their asses back up, and then they head into Egypt. It says in verse number 14, And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there. And they fell before him on the ground. So they're falling before him. Notice that this is happening repeatedly, right? Of course, that's a, a, a sign of them falling on his feet, with it, which is uh, the fulfillment of the, the dream that, that he had. Look at verse number 15. It says, And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that ye have done? Why ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? Now, I want to focus on that word for just a minute because a lot of people uh, misunderstand the word divine. I want to define it for you. Uh, I'm going to give you the definition of just a, a, a dictionary definition. And then I'm going to explain to you from the Bible. I'm going to give you an example uh, from the Bible. Um, I forgot to write down the verse, but we'll find it. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 28. If you would have been paying attention earlier in the chapter, the word divine... Uh, was used one other time about his cup. He said in verse 5, Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Right? Now, divine today, most people think that that's just a reference to God. 
Uh, to be very, very specific to its core root, divine and deity are not perfectly synonymous. Uh, divinity oftentimes is used in the same way as deity, and I even will use it that way, but they're not perfectly synonymous. The word divinity does refer to something supernatural, but it does not necessarily mean uh, deity as in, you know, the Lord or God. So there in 1 Samuel chapter number 28, let me see if I can find this uh, here. 1 Samuel chapter number 28. I believe I know where it's at. Anyways, or about where it's at. It should be right around verse 7 or 8. And Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up, whom I shall name unto thee. So notice how he words. He says, divine unto me. And then he says, by what? By a familiar spirit. Most of the time when the word divine is used in the Bible, it's not good. Most of the time, it's bad. Most of the time when the word divine is used, you know, divinations and diviners are, are, are part and parcel with witches and warlocks and people that are, that are messing with, you know, familiar spirits. Now, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a supernatural power, but it's the powers of evil. Obviously, this woman, if you know the entirety of the passage in the story, she is literally able to conjure up a spirit. I mean, there's power there, obviously. The devil has power. You know, that's why people think that it's just a joke when, it, when we start talking about witches and warlocks and people refer to it as black magic and things like that. That stuff's evil. And there really are real powers out there. And there really are, you know, uh, uh, you know like the Bible talks about how there, there, there are wicked, evil people in high places and powers in high places. That's what's going on there. And the devil really has a, a, an aspect of supernatural power. And we see this witch with Samuel. He goes to her, he says, divine unto me by a familiar spirit. And, and then he wants to, of course, bring up Samuel. Saul goes to him. And what does she do? She conjures up a spirit from the dead. I mean, that's pretty powerful. So the word divine, when it's majority of the time used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when you start looking up in the New Testament, it has a slightly different meaning. Almost every time in the Old Testament, it's negative. And it's speaking about, obviously with Joseph it's not, but almost every time in the Old Testament it's negative because it's talking about the supernatural powers that, uh, let's say, false prophets or witches and warlocks use. It's like in the book of Jeremiah, oftentimes, uh, when Jeremiah's preaching against the false prophets and the Lord's preaching against the false prophets, he'll make a statement as far as something along the lines like, the prophets have seen a vain vision and then he says, they have, you know, divined a lie, right? He's just repeating the same thing. What does, what does uh, Saul want the witch to do? He wants her to reveal some supernatural truth to him. That's what he wants. It is almost all the time referring to a prophet through some spirit, which is an evil spirit. It would be a, it would be a, a false prophet in this context, being able to foretell some sort of, uh, you know, uh, future event. We're being able to reveal some sort of truth. Now, the counterpart to that is, of course, people like Joseph. Well, when Joseph's talking about divining here, he's speaking about being able to prophesy. I believe that very strongly because it is a, it is a very strong consistency. When you look up the word divine in the Old Testament, it's always talking about prophesy. It's used, uh, it's coupled with visions, dreams, prophesying, seers every time, almost every single time. You get to the New Testament, and it 
is used most of the time about God's spirit, how he's made us partakers of his divine nature. What's that talking about? God's spirit. So you see the overlap there when he goes and says, hey, divine unto me through your familiar spirit. So there's an evil, a supernatural spirit that they are going to divine, which is prophesy. Tell me this truth, right? But what does Joseph do? He divides through the Lord's Spirit, right? So in the New Testament, when you see the word divine, oftentimes it is positive and it is speaking about the Lord. But what it really overall refers to is supernatural power. Oftentimes it's referring to the Spirit, is what it's referring to, a spirit. Could be the Lord's Spirit, or it could be an evil spirit. And right here he says, Why ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? And that's, of course, something that Joseph was very well known for in the kingdom was being able to prophesy. Uh, there's, there's strong consistency with that word. You know, you know if, if that sounds strange to you, it's because you have a preconceived idea. When you look it up in the Bible, every single time divine, a diviner is someone prophesying. Every single time. Look at verse number 16. And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? Saying, how can we prove that we're innocent? He's basically saying there's nothing we can do because we're guilty. He's saying this. We've been caught red-handed, right? He says this. God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. So all the brethren are there. They came to Joseph. Obviously, this was not the deal. What the servant said or the steward of his house said was, hey, I, you know, it's going to be how you said it, but then he rewords it. It's not exactly how they said it. He says, what we're going to do is whoever the cup's found with, he's coming with me and he's going to stay. Well, now they laded their asses and they came down to Joseph's house and it says he was yet there. They come before him and they say, hey, you know, you found us out. We're guilty. And then they make the statement, we are my Lord's servants, all of them. Both we, and then it says this, and he also with whom the cup is found. So now they're saying, hey, we're all going to serve you. All of us. You found us out and we're guilty. Which they think at this point, well, I guess Joseph took it. Verse 17, and he said, God forbid that I should do so. That's Joseph. He's saying that wouldn't be righteous to punish you guys for what this one man has done. But the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. Now, I've heard a lot of people say this. Actually, what I've heard taught my whole life. And it, it makes the most sense of anything in this passage of why Joseph, what is his overall motive? I mean, we're never really clearly explained, you know, what is Joseph thinking? What is he doing? You know, what's his purpose? What is his end goal out of all of this? Because he's got this huge scheme. I mean, this is a massive uh, um, operation that he's pulling on these guys. This is big. I mean, he's... He's like threatening to kill people. He's throwing people in prison. He's sending them back with, with food and, 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 and uh, putting their money back in their sacks. They're all too scared to even come back and buy food again. They're about to die from the famine. They come back and he's happy with them and eating with them. Gets their brother out. Meets uh, uh, Benjamin. And then he gets their sacks again and fills it back up again. And puts the silver cup in there again. I mean, there's a lot going on here. There's just a big... You know, a big plan that's going on behind the scenes. I, I believe that what makes the most sense is that he wanted uh, Benjamin to stay with him. We saw how much adoration he had for Benjamin. 
when he saw Benjamin, you know, uh, he asked him a couple of questions, and they were just he was speaking unto him in endearing terms, if you will. And then he just couldn't refrain himself, it says. He broke down in tears and cried and, and, and had to run away, right? So he loved his brother, and, you know, he treated his brother much better. Remember, the, he, he lined them all up from eldest to youngest, and what did he do? He gave them all a mess, it says, right? Just saying miscellaneous things, what it means by a mess. Different types of gifts, that's what it means by a mess. And, and he gives them all a mess, and it says that, that Benjamin's was, what, five times, I believe? Uh, five times is what I believe it says. Five times larger than all the other brothers. He cares about Benjamin a lot. Now, notice what he did. He put that cup in specifically Benjamin's sack. And then they come back, and they're like, and this obviously isn't what he planned. They're like, and we'll all be your servants. And he's like, no, no, no we're not doing that. He's like, the one that's going to stay with me is the one in whom uh, the, the sack, it was found. That's who's going to stay with me. So you can, it seems to be that this is his motive. You know, we're never specifically told, but we can try, you know, read between the lines, if you will. It seems that he wants Benjamin to stay. And um, that would make the most sense why he put the money in their sacks to begin with and why he kept Simeon you know, as collateral to say, hey, I'm keeping Simeon here and I'm making sure that they come back. But not only that, I'll give them money. And there could be a couple of reasons why to make sure that they had enough money to come back and purchase it. Because he doesn't know what their finances are like in the first place, right? But then also they could be worried. So there could be a couple of reasons why that could compel them to come back. Just in case they thought, and it seemed like they did, that they were just going to leave Simeon behind. You know, remember Jacob's like, you know, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. That means dead in the Bible, when that phrase is used, is not. So it's like he's just like counting him as a goner, basically, right? So Joseph, I believe, put that money in there just as a way to compel them to coerce or allure them to come back, and then also kept Simeon as well. And then this time he did the same thing, but he specifically put the cup in Joseph's, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Benjamin's bag. I've been saying Joseph and Benjamin back and forth. I know you guys have noticed that. In Benjamin's bag, or Benjamin's sack, and then he sent them forth, sent his steward, and said, hey, bring them back, and they come back with some other plan other than his. And they're like, hey, we're all staying. He's like, no, 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 no. He's staying. Why? Because he loves his brother. He, wants, he obviously has a great love for Benjamin above all of his other brethren. I believe that he planned on Benjamin staying with him. At least for a, a, a time, at least for a period of time, if we try to, you know, uh, uh, you know, it could be even, and obviously this is all conjecture, it could be even that he wasn't really planning things very, very plainly and clearly. It could be somewhat irrational while he's doing this. You know, he could be trying to get them back and different things like that, but that makes the most sense that he's trying to keep Benjamin there with him. Look at uh, verse number um, 17. We're going to read it one more time. We read it before. We'll read it again. And he said, God forbid that I should do so. But the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And he says, as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. So notice, he wants Benjamin to stay. That's clear. And he wants them to leave. Verse 18. Then Judah came near unto him and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, Speak a word in my Lord's ear. Notice ears, I'm sorry. Notice the great humility. And let not thine anger burn against thy servant. So he's obviously mad when he's saying this, right? For thou art even as Pharaoh. He's saying you have the power as Pharaoh. And that was, of course, what the purpose that, that Joseph pointed out that he is able to divine. He's saying, you know, I have powers is what he's pointing out, right? And uh, that's what he's pointing out there is I read, he's acknowledging the authority that he has. That you're, you're just as, you're as Pharaoh. <clears throat> Verse 19. 
my Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? So he's recalling the conversation that they had when, when Joseph had inquired of the brethren, of the, the sons of uh, Jacob, and said, Hey, do you have a father? Do you have a brother? This is going back to when he was accusing them of being spies. We're going to read down through here. I shouldn't need much commentary for the next few verses. He says, My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Verse 20. And we said unto my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a child of his old age, a little one. He's a young son. And his brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother. And his father loveth him. And thou sayest unto thy servants, Bring him down unto me, that I may set mine eyes upon him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And thou sayest unto thy servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, ye shall see my face no more. And it came to pass, when we came up unto thy servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. So they told the words that Joseph had said to them, and told them unto their father Jacob. Verse 25. And our father said, go again and buy us a little food. This was, of course, the beginning of 44, chapter 44. And we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother be with us, then will we go down. For we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And thy servant, my father, said unto us, ye know that my wife bare me two sons. He's referring to... Rachel again. This this uh, boosts up the fact that you know he loved uh, Joseph and Benjamin specifically more. Showed favoritism towards them because he had a favorite wife. He showed favoritism towards Rachel. Notice how he words that. He says, "And I servant, my father said unto us, you know that my wife bare me two sons." So notice how he's 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 you know. Uh, um, uh, lifting up Rachel. He says, my wife bear me two sons. Obviously, I had many more children than that, but he puts them on a different level. <clears throat> Verse 28, And the one went out from me, talking about Joseph, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if ye take this also from me, and mischief befall him, ye shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. saying that he'll die you know, from sadness, from depression. And this is, people actually do do this. There's, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, I, I actually mentioned it, I believe, in one of the sermons, but it's something along the lines of the widow effect or something like that, where it's, it's extremely common. It's like more than 50% of the time, if you're above the age 80 and your spouse dies, and, uh, and, and there's other, a few other factors, that you will die within six months. Like, it's an extremely high statistic. I mean, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but I remember it being super high. You look it up yourself. I think it's called the widow effect, but it's, it's super, super common. So the, the point is that depression and sorrow and sadness, your heart, you know, like, like uh, Jeremiah said in the book of Lamentations, you know, uh, he says, mine eye affecteth my heart, right? There's, a, there's this, uh, uh, you know, uh, reaction back and forth between our spirit, between our body, our soul, our mind, our, our you know, mental things will affect you uh, uh, very often physically. You'll have, literally, you'll have, you know, physical effects come upon you. Sometimes people will be in great shock and what's ha what happens, like severe, severe shock. It, you know, they'll be induced into a shock, and they'll get sick. And this is just from them being extremely scared, right? People can be frightened so badly that they come down with some sort of fever and a cold and stuff. What is that? That's your brain, the mental stress upon your brain, 
and and and, and you know the physical aspect uh, affecting you know or I'm sorry the mental aspect affecting you physically in the sense of your emotions just you know that's all that it is just be fearfulness affecting you and making you sick well he's that's that's basically saying here saying I'd be so sad you know that at that point I'd just be ready to die I'd die from depression right this is a real thing it really does happen to people often look at verse number thirty. <clears throat> Now, therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us. But because of all those things he said, and then I come to him and I don't have him. And then he says this, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. Like that's the only reason why he has to live, basically. That's what he's saying. Verse 31, it shall come to pass when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Verse 32, for thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father. Remember, you know, that's like him. He says, I'll be the pledge, basically. I'm the collateral saying that I will for sure bring it back. I'm the one that's promising it. <clears throat> he's saying, so this is Judah. He said, he's saying, because he was the one that said, I'll be surety. He says, you can kill my kids, right? Remember him saying that? You can slay all my children if I don't bring it back. So, of course, uh, a hyperbole, he doesn't mean that literally, it's an exact, a purposeful exaggeration. Then he says this, if I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. He was the one responsible. Verse 33, now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come. On my father. So we went through all that pretty quickly. And the reason being is because he's just recapping. He's just re-explaining most of that, the conversation that he had and how things worked out um, with uh, when they went up and spoke to their father and, and conveyed the news and the messages back and forth and how they came back now, how all that worked out. And he's saying, hey, if this comes to pass, you know, this is how my father is going to react. And then he, of course, gives him the additional information like, I was the one that promised that I would bring him back. And he, so, one thing that, that we definitely can learn from this that's great, of course, Judah made massive mistakes. He was the one, if you remember, that came up with the idea to sell him, and that's Joseph, for 20 pieces of silver. He was the one that said that. And here, what we can see him doing is taking responsibility for his words. When you make a promise to somebody, you need to keep it. When you promise someone something, you need to keep it. You need to be a man of your word. You know, a lot of times people tell people things, you know, kind of like your vows when you stand up and you get married. When you give that vow, you need to be it. When you say, till death do us part, that means that that uh, needs to mean till death do us part. You need to actually mean what you say. Today, people have no character. And, you know, this, you know, this is just prevalent throughout just the United States, our culture, our society. You know, when you go back 50, 60 years... You know, somebody, you know, give him a handshake, and you can trust that that guy is going to carry out whatever he said, right? People's words and their promises actually meant things. You know, people knew, hey, so-and-so told me that he was going to do it, or he told me that he was going to be here. I know that he'll be here. Because our culture at that time highly esteemed the importance of keeping your vows or keeping your words. And we as Christians, we don't need to be changing with culture. We don't need to be changing with how the United States is and how our society is because what they're doing is going 
down the tube. That's what they're doing. You try to be like them, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go down the tube. You know what we need to do? We need to be people of our word. And when you say that you're going to do something, I don't care what you encounter after that. You need to do it. You know, a lot of times what people do and what they mean, and, and you look at marriage today for an example. What happens is when something bad comes about in the marriage, well, guess what? I'm bailing out. Because they didn't actually mean till death do us part. What they meant was, you know, while you please me and keep me happy. They said those words, but they weren't faithful to those words. They weren't. And, and really what that comes down to is, is, is a lack of responsibility. Not taking responsibility for what you've said. So you people just aren't accountable for things anymore. People just aren't faithful. We have a lack of faithful men and faithful women. When you as a Christian tell someone you're going to do something, don't give God a bad name by not doing it. Because that's what you're doing, my friend. If people know you're a Christian, you tell people you're a Christian, you tell your neighbor you're a Christian, you say, hey, I'm going to do this, this, and this for you, you need to do it. You know, that gives people a reason to blaspheme the name of the Lord. That's what that does. That gives people a reason to say, you know, what do you think is going on in their mind when they see people in church all the time? You're big. You're trying to give the gospel. You're big on Christianity. They were raised a Catholic. They're not really interested in church and things like that. And then, because trust me, when you tell somebody you're going to do something and they need you to do it, they remember, my friend. They remember. Just like, think about it in your case. When you need somebody and you really need them, what are you thinking when they don't come through? You said you'd be here, and you're not here. Of course, it's irritating, isn't it? Because you're depending on this person. Do you know what that person's thinking? They're thinking, you're not faithful. You say you're thinking, you're a hypocrite. You say you're going to come through with this. And that's how people, and that's it. it gets, people are already re looking for reasons to pick Christians apart. They're already, there's, you know, there's a major stigma with Christians that we're all hypocrites. That's, that's out there. People like you, you hear people saying all the time, which is complete stupidity in the first place, you know, I'm not going to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites in the church, right? That's cliche. You've heard that numerous times. But that gives you an idea of the overall school of thought on how people view the church, and how people view Christianity. So you know what you need to do is you need to try to reverse that thinking. thinking. You need to try to invert that thought in their mind, and they can think, hey, you know what? Christians are faithful. That guy told me he was going to do that, and he did it. Look at what happened here with Judah. That's the point. This was an extreme situation. You know what he said? He said, he said, this is basically what he was saying. You know, I'll be surety. He's saying, whatever happens, I promise you that I'll make sure that he comes back no matter what I have to do. And then even unto death. He's talking about the death of his children, him. And what does he do? He comes down to it, and you know what he says? I told my father that I would let him go back. And what I'm willing to do so that I keep my word, so of course he loves his father as well, but he wants to keep his word. That meant something to him. You can see he has character here. You know what he says? He says, I'll, I'll stay here in his place. I'll be the bondman. He's willing to be a slave the rest of his life to make sure that he's faithful to his promise. That's how you need to be as a Christian. You need to make sure that you keep your word. Don't be that type of person that's just undependable. That I know he's never... And you know, sometimes it can be for, for forgetfulness. Everyone falls victim to this from time to time, right? But you need to know, you know what you need to do? You need to try to be, you know, uh, you need to try to remember these things. 
You try not to be forgetful. You try to make sure you do it right away. That's one way that you, just like with prayer, right? You tell somebody you're going to pray for them. A way to make sure that you do that and you don't lie to them is that you do it immediately. Or you do it at the very next time when you sit down to pray if you don't have an opportunity immediately. You need to do it right away. We need to take, that needs to be important to us that when we say we're going to do something, we don't just flippantly tell people constantly, yeah, I'll be there, I promise. Yeah, I'll do it, I promise. Yeah, I'll be there. You know, I bow to you. I swear on my son's life. And then you're just like nowhere to be found, right? You're like, yeah, I had this thing come up, man, you know. Really, you know, wanted to go to whatever. We went to a football game the other day. So I wanted to go to a football game, some sort of recreation, something fun, while you're just blowing somebody off and you told them you'd help them do something, right? You know, someone make everybody bow that they're coming when we do the church uh, uh, work day, right? You know, you need to be a man of your word. And women need to be women of their word. Doesn't sound good. That's not cliche. But, you know, we need to make sure that when we tell somebody that we're going to do something, that we do it. It's embarrassing. And it really is. It really, truly is shameful and embarrassing. Because there's people that you know that you can think of right now in your mind that do that kind of stuff all the time. They say they're going to do something for you, and they don't do it all the time. You know, they say that they're going to help you. They say whatever it may be. Right? You know, so... We, we can all forget things. We need to try not to forget them, and we need to make sure that we do what we're going to say that we do, right? Even my, my video is thinking, Jeff, Jeff Utzler, I don't feel like making that video now. Time has went on, but I'm, I'm making some sort of a response because I said that I was going to make it. One day down here, Brother Hall kept coming up to me and reminding me about it. Hey, are you going to make a video, Brother Hall? I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, Brother Hall. He brought up like three times. But I, I, I'm going to make the video. I've thought about it repeatedly because I said that I was going to do it. That's why. That's why it bothered me. You know, because I said that I was going to do it and the whole world, not the whole world, but, you know, a thousand people or whatever heard that and I said I was going to do it. So I need to do it. You say you're going to do something, you need to do it. Use whatever it may be. You know, this is also why the Bible says, hey, you know, it's better not to bow at all. It's better not to swear at all. Don't, you know, make promises and say you're going to do things. Because the Bible, you know, it's then a sin to break that promise. You need to be a faithful man. You need to be faithful to your word. If you say you're going to do something, you need to do it. The last point quickly is that we can see a change in character with Judah's attitude. We can see that Judah's not the same person. Now, what's going on right now is the almost the exact same situation, very similar situation with Joseph. Isn't it? Benjamin's getting ready to do what? Go into slavery. What was Joseph at that time? As far as the relationship between the father and himself. He was the favorite son, wasn't he? By far. What is Benjamin? He's the favorite son. What was the reason why he wanted to get rid of Joseph? Was why? Because of the favoritism that he showed towards him. Is, is, is that bothering Judah at this point? Evidently not. Right? Because he obviously moved on from that. He obviously moved past that. He obviously matured on past that. You can see a difference in his character. Now, in this case, he's willing to sacrifice himself in the place of Benjamin, isn't he? You know, I've heard people even say that this could be uh, a possibly one of the reasons why the line of Judah, you know, became the line of which the Messiah, you know, uh, was procreated through. Right? Of course, this is in heaven. We'll try to twist my words, right? Uh, but that I've heard people say that. Now, the primary reason, just not to leave you hanging there, 
So you understand this. The primary reason is because the first three lost the blessing. The firstborn, it, it starts at the firstborn. You know, Reuben laid with his, we'll get to this in Genesis 49, but Reuben uh, laid with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi did what? Anybody remember? They went into the city and slain, slew everybody, right? They both, when they get their blessing in 49, like it's super negative. Dude, this is going to happen. You're going to be, Levi's going to be scattered, and then he gives a bad one to Reuben. And then he gets to Judah, and it's positive, and the Messiah is coming on his line. That's the, that's the main reason, because that's what it's based upon. But what we see here, of course, is this is definitely symbolic. I like to point out symbolic things, of course, point things to Christ. It's, I don't believe that it's a coincidence at all. You know, we see that it's Judah, the line of which Jesus comes one day, is the one that's saying, hey, I'll sacrifice myself to many. That's interesting. You can see the, you know, the, the picture of Jesus there over and over again. It doesn't matter whether it's Judah, Joseph. There's all these different pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see a change in character. And, of course, at the very beginning, spoiler alert, chapter number 45, the very beginning, of course, is when Joseph uh, uh, breaks down, starts crying, can't refrain himself, and reveals his identity of who he is. Uh, at this point, and, and I believe that he can see here that they know what they have done is wrong, and that's why Judah is willing to say, "Hey, I'll step in his place," because that's why they're saying, "You found out my iniquity." You can see that it was bothering them the entire time. This is them understanding what I did to Joseph was wrong. I can't do it again to my father. They know, and Judah knows. That he was the one that said, hey, 20 pieces of silver you can have, my brother. While the brother's pleading with them not to. And then they went back and they had to watch their father cry and be depressed and want to die for months and years. And still not over it where he's bringing it up constantly even the little that we see what he speaks of, what he says. So obviously this bothered Judah. And he's saying, and he even mentions, hey, you know, this is what happened. He's explaining it to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph. He's explaining it to the governor of Egypt, and he's saying, hey, this is what happened. Our other, our other brother is not, and my father almost died over that. And now all he has left is this other son. What's he saying? You know, this is just going to push him over the edge. What I did was wrong, and I don't want it to happen again. I don't want it to happen again. So you can see here uh, a change in character, maturity. You can see repentance. There's many things we can learn in these last few verses. We'll read verse 34 one more time. We're going to close for how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? And then he says, lest peradventure I see the evil that 